what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. Before there were egg beaters, there were women with whisks and spoons beating eggs. As a woman who bakes and also owns a KitchenAid Pro stand mixer, the thought of doing everything my mixer does with my own two hands is a bit horrifying. Unbelievable! I can combine my flour, milk, yeast, butter, and eggs, turn on my mixer, and walk away as it needs my brioche for me. Instead of spending 10 minutes bent over a floured slab of granite kneading the dough by hand, I can use that time to sweep up or empty the dishwasher. I can be more productive. Not only can I be more productive, but I expect to be more productive. Why just bake some bread when you can also fold laundry, write a few more paragraphs, brine the chicken for dinner? Sarah Marshall coins the phrase, the egg beater effect, in an episode of you're wrong about. She describes how the invention of labor-saving devices often just cause us to raise our expectations of how we're using our time. It's not enough to make faster omelets with an egg beater. You've got to crank out Italian meringue and souffles. It may or may not be a coincidence that the souffle in its modern form didn't come into being until the 1850s, the same time that inventors began filing patents for egg beaters. Regardless of whether these developments were connected at the time, they're certainly connected now. After all, most home cooks would think twice about planning their desserts if it required time spent whipping egg whites or cream or butter by hand. Sarah Marshall. Women have been told over and over again that technology will free them. Technology will save you time. Women aren't being freed by technology. Women are a technology. Like the housewife is the best technology. Marshall references a book called More Work for Mother, in which historian Ruth Schwartz-Cohen really fleshes out this idea. She points to how the 19th century was a revolutionary time in terms of the invention of labor-saving devices for the home. Egg beaters, yes, but also washing machines, apple pears, better stoves, and store-bought flour. But she writes, quote, when discussed by the people who actually did housework or by the people who watched the people who were actually doing it, it seems not to have become one whit more convenient or less tiring during the whole of that century. What a strange paradox that in the face of so many labor-saving devices, little labor appears to have been saved. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy with your humanity intact. Labor-saving devices don't tend to save us labor or time. They change our expectations for labor and the ways we use our time. The gas-powered lawnmower, the dishwasher, the power drill, the food processor. These tools have dramatically shifted what's considered common or easy to achieve. Would I think about the property around my house in the same way if it wasn't easy to maintain a moderately manicured lawn? This isn't necessarily bad, of course. I'm glad to have my stand mixer and food processor. I'm super glad to have the software I'll use to edit this episode, which has allowed us to get way more creative with the way we produce podcast episodes. But at the same time, I'm glad to have this software. 
I also know how much it's changed my expectations for what constitutes a well-produced episode. Whereas I used to just record an intro and outro after I did an interview and leave the rest to our main podcast editor, I now spend hours crafting what is hopefully a more engaging listening experience. I am constantly trying to remind myself that I don't always have to do it this way if I don't want to or if I don't have time. But once that expectation shifts, it's hard to shift back. The psychologist Barry Schwartz asserts that lowering our expectations can make us happier, though. When we opt for good enough instead of the best choice, we're more likely to be satisfied. And that makes me think of Abby Covert's philosophy of information architecture and how one of the most important tasks is to first establish what constitutes good. For instance, I hear from business owners all the time who want to know what is the best social media platform to be on or the best place to build a website or the best way to produce a podcast. But best doesn't tell me, well, anything really. I need to know what they're trying to achieve, what their preferences are, how they want to spend their time. I need to know how they're defining a good result. And once I know what their good result is, I can help them narrow down the options. And from there, they can choose how they want to move forward. Good enough really is good enough when you're clear on what constitutes good. Now, I've been thinking about the egg beater effect ever since I heard the idea. I look at the tools, technology of a kind that I take for granted and consider how they've changed my behavior, my personal expectations, as well as the societal expectations I am met with and my sense of what's normal or preferred. And of course, it's impossible to think of labor-saving devices without thinking about the internet. As a creative professional, the internet might be the one labor-saving device I use most frequently. The internet makes it possible for me to quickly research any subject, connect with colleagues, and produce the product of my labor, whether that be an essay published on a website or a podcast episode or a coaching call. I've been online since it started to become a presence in middle-class homes, if not ubiquitous yet, at least not wholly unexpected. I am in awe of how my expectations for what I can accomplish by way of the internet have shifted. What I expect from a website today is dramatically different because of what I can create with WordPress. What I expect from the aesthetic of a piece of content is wildly different because of what I can create with Canva. Who I expect to connect with is vastly different because of platforms like Twitter and Instagram. Now, I don't call out these changes because I think the new expectations are bad or good. On their face, they're pretty neutral. But how I relate to these expectations can quickly become toxic. For instance, once I know it's possible to create a fabulous website with WordPress, I might come to believe that nothing but a website with all the bells and whistles is acceptable. Or once I know that I can whip out a gorgeous set of graphics for Instagram, I might come to believe that a simple snapshot just isn't going to cut it. What's more, these shifts in expectation aren't limited to my individual experience. We start to see new standards set across groups and cultures. Consider beauty trends. The advent of the modern cosmetics industry and its mass marketing shifted the beauty expectations for women. Individual choices, or hacks, which are labor-saving technology, can influence the masses really fast. 
When Kim Kardashian shared how contouring, a technique she appropriated from drag beauty, allowed her to achieve a certain look, it quickly became a new standard for many women. Again, it's not that contouring as a trend or even as an expectation is necessarily bad. It's that our relationship to it as a trend or expectation can easily become toxic. There comes a point in time when choosing to make a souffle, contour your face, or maintain your manicured lawn is no longer a fun, creative choice. It's a compulsion. It's a burden that can't be lifted until it's done. Why and how do evolving expectations become non-negotiable burdens? The key, I think, is the moral dimension of clock time. When Benjamin Franklin declared that time is money, he was making plain an ethic that had been bubbling up since the beginning of Calvinism. The way we manage our time today, especially in the United States, is based on the ascetic Protestant ethic that eschewed leisure and lionized work. And while capitalism was in its most nascent stages during Calvin's time, it didn't take long to connect work and with it a calling to wealth or even middle-class status as a sign of God's favor. In other words, if time is money and possessing money is a sign of God's favor, then the way we spend our time is a moral issue. Whether or not you believe in a God, this logic is baked into our capitalist culture. You can see its evidence in news broadcasts, quote grams, and books about productivity. The narrative hides in the most unexpected places and forms the basis for many of our life decisions, whether we're conscious of it or not. Therefore, labor-saving devices aren't really about saving time, but creating the capacity for more work. And if we have a capacity for more work, the story tells us to work more so we can earn more. That's our moral duty. And today, as crypto pioneers find ways to commodify, literally, every aspect of our lives, our moral duty to work and earn money extends to every minute of every day, waking or not. So let's unpack how some small business egg beaters have changed our expectations for better or worse. I'm gonna take a closer look at three, project management apps, social platforms, and virtual assistants. Let's start with project management apps. My podcast production agency runs on ClickUp. ClickUp has been running ads that advertise you can save a whole day every week by using their product. And our team will attest to there being a good deal of truth in that claim. But here's the thing. How would you spend an extra day per week? Very few people would make the choice that Sean makes regularly, increasing the number of naps he takes per week. Most people think about adding another client, building a new product, or tackling that project they just haven't been able to get to. Now, I am in no way against project management apps, but I do think we have to be critical about how they shift our expectations. When we come to an app like ClickUp or Asana, most of us bring with us a more is more approach to productivity. And so for every hour saved, we add something new into the mix to fill it. At first, we might tell ourselves that it's extra, that we're just going to get ahead and then we'll take advantage of a more relaxed schedule. But our baseline changes. Maybe we've even taken on more work to increase revenue and grow the business in the process. 
Suddenly, we can't just do the same amount of work as before in less time, or we risk feeling lazy or wasteful. Now, this reminds me of economist John Maynard Keene's prediction that by the year 2000, we wouldn't have to work more than 15 hours per week. His 1930 essay, Economic Possibilities for My Grandchildren, is delightful. It's full of such hope and optimism, as well as insistence of rethinking how we spend our time and how and why we earn money. Keynes rightly predicted that if technological innovation continued apace, our society would pick up incredible efficiency over the next 100 years. He believed that most people would use that efficiency to pursue what he called the art of life itself, as opposed to selling themselves for the means of life. He also gave a bit of a warning that resonates in our 21st century economy, saying that some will look on this prospect with dread, quote, for we have been trained too long to strive and not to enjoy. If you're curious about this, I do really recommend this short essay. It's surprisingly accessible, and there are more joyous exclamation marks in it than I have ever seen in a work of economics. That said, while I found myself really enjoying the piece, here in the year 2022, nearly 100 years after Keynes wrote the piece, it seems naive. Part of Keynes' prediction was that the majority of people would be fine with having enough for a comfortable life. That given the choice between material excess and excess time, we'd choose excess time. piece he got wrong. That's the piece that hasn't come to fruition. Early on, Keynes talks about how technological innovation in the Industrial Revolution outpaced economic innovation and pointed to that as a cause of the Depression and other economic unrest. Today, it seems to me, marketing innovation, financial innovation, and labor innovation has outpaced our economic innovation yet again. We're caught just trying to keep up. Being satisfied wasn't ever an evident choice for most people. And so when I think about productivity tools, I have to wonder if we're falling into that same trap. Has our ability to manage our time and squeeze in more work outpaced our ability to recognize what getting enough done looks like? Have our expectations shifted so far that we can't even appreciate the time we're quote unquote saving anymore? I don't see any way to answer those questions other than yes, absolutely. Now, let's take a look at social platforms and specifically our expectations for the number of people our communications reach. Before the advent of social media, we predominantly communicated one-on-one, on phone calls, in letters, on lunch dates. We spoke to an audience of one and listened to one person's response. If we were in a position of more power, say a teacher, executive, or journalist, we might become accustomed to talking to a group of people all at once. But when broadcast email, blogs, and social media came on the scene, we could potentially communicate with an audience of strangers from all over the world. Of course, it didn't start out that way. In the beginning, we were still connecting with friends and family. But little by little, the expectation changed for many people. We learned how to share messages that spread and introduced us to hundreds or thousands of strangers, even if that was never their intended purpose. 
Social platforms promise to connect us with our friends and family and maybe introduce us to new people who share our interests, geographic location, or career. But as Gina Bianchini and I discussed in episode 370, we've discovered that we can use these platforms to talk to massive numbers of people we don't know all at once. We've learned that these platforms have the power to broadcast our messages far and wide. It's tempting for us to see this as an innovation that benefits us as small business owners, freelancers, or marketers. But just like women have been turned into the technology of housewives, now entrepreneurs and creative people have been turned into the technology of creators. This technology exists to benefit platforms, not individuals. We create to save platforms from having to create their own content as news sites or magazines do. Let that sink in for a bit. Oh my goodness. Now in the past, if we wanted to reach people we don't know, we would have attended networking events, maybe done some cold calling, placed an ad, or asked for an introduction. And certainly, those things all still happen to an extent. But it was a slower process, and it required a lot more skin in the game. You needed to think of who was on the receiving end of your call, handshake, or introduction so that you had the best chance of making an effective connection. The way we've used social platforms, though, has changed our expectations. Today, we're often thinking about how many people we're reaching with a particular post or over the course of a month. How many people liked this or shared that? How many people commented? Our expectation has become that a good post is one that reaches hundreds or thousands of people because that's what social platforms made possible. Yet, reach is rarely a good metric to measure. It says nothing about how someone was impacted by your content or message. It says nothing about whether what you posted will lead to actual business results. Likes and shares, they don't say much either. Further, our expectation that we can reach thousands of people has prevented us from asking whether we should be reaching thousands of people. Is that going to help us reach our goals? Is it going to close deals? Is it going to build a brand in a meaningful way? Is it even generating any revenue? Many of us spend so much time on thinking about reaching more people that we never consider whether the better way forward might be phone calls, handshakes, and introductions. Look, I am not nostalgic for good old-fashioned networking, but I can tell you that the way people with big businesses and even big audiences create the majority of their results looks a whole lot more like handshakes than it does scheduled posts. Years ago, I hosted writer Alexandra Franzen for a workshop at the co-working space I started on the Oregon coast. She talked to the group assembled about how to think about the audiences they had. She said that she knew how easy it is to disregard the power of a quote-unquote small audience. But she invited attendees to think about the physical space their audiences would inhabit. A conference room? A passenger jet? Maybe a small theater, a banquet hall, an outdoor stadium? I often reference Alexandra's prompt when I talk to podcasters who fret about their download numbers. Some shows have 50 listeners, others a few hundred. But when you think about what 50 or a few hundred bodies look like, you start to get a sense of the power of your communication. 
But since the expectation is that if you're doing it right, you're going to amass an audience of many thousands, many of us forget about the people we're already reaching and focus on the people we're not yet reaching. Once you know you can reach 10 people, you figure you should be reaching 100. Once you know you can reach 100 people, you figure you should be reaching 1,000. Once you know you can reach 1,000 people, you figure you better be reaching 10,000. And on and on and on. Why are we compelled to reach more people rather than reach the people who already are paying attention more effectively? Has the technological innovation for broadcasting outpaced our capacity for social innovation? And have we built businesses on the potential for reaching a large audience rather than the reality of who is listening? Finally, I want to take a closer look at virtual assistants. Back in episode 364, Janice Plato Dalliger and I talked about the often unspoken, unrecognized value of virtual assistants, online business managers, and other support professionals who help us build our businesses. We talked about the emotional labor of assisting, as well as the exploitation that many support pros face. That is an extremely important conversation. And if this topic piques your interest, I highly recommend listening to that episode. But today, I want to talk about something a little different as it pertains to the way business owners use virtual assistants and support professionals and the egg beater effect that hiring a VA can create. Again, just like how women have been transformed into the technology of housewives, people who do support work are often seen as technology, even as interchangeable parts. It's objectifying and harmful for everyone involved. Now, I often hear something like this from business owners. I just can never get around to posting to social media or sending emails or pitching myself to podcasts or insert other task here. So I'm going to hire a VA to do it. All right, fair enough. But that thinking presupposes that doing that thing or likely many things is important to your business. And by not doing it, you're missing out on substantial results. But is that true? Do you know that a non-existent approach to social media or not pitching yourself to podcasts or not sending emails is harming your business? Just because you can hire a virtual assistant or support pro to do a task doesn't mean that task should be done. It doesn't mean it's essential to how your business runs. There's an excellent chance that you'll spend money, time, and brain power on helping your VA execute the task without seeing any results on the back end. It's that same old issue. Just because you can whip your egg whites up into stiff peaks doesn't mean you should make a souffle. If you love to make souffle, by all means, go for it. But don't add work to your plate that doesn't provide some meaningful result. And that just brings me right back to my conversation with Janice. When we're spending time and money on getting work done that doesn't need to get done and isn't providing meaningful results, there is an excellent chance that that's going to impact our relationship with the person doing that work and not in a good way. So my question here is, has our labor innovation outpaced our strategic analysis or self-awareness? So those are just three ways I see the egg beater effect play out in small businesses today. We spend money and mental bandwidth on labor-saving devices 
only to actually increase the labor we do. Our expectations go up, and so does the number of items on our to-do lists. Are there other things you spend money on that impact the way you spend your time? And are those expenses enhancing your life or work? Or are they just convincing you to do more? Remember, I love my stand mixer, and I love a labor-saving device, but I also love to know what's actually necessary, enjoyable, or result-producing so I don't fill my time with stuff that's just extra. Next week, we'll continue our series on time and money with Elizabeth Jackson. Elizabeth describes her work as where humanness meets business operations. We'll talk about how we spend the time inside of our businesses and how that relates to the results we produce. If this episode got you thinking differently, I would so appreciate if you shared it with a friend. The more people we can get to think differently about entrepreneurship or even being an entrepreneur at heart, the more we can instigate change in the systems that just aren't working. So thank you in advance. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was edited by me, Tara McMullen, and Marty Seafelt. Our executive producer is Sean McMullen. 